Well, those that know me will know what will understand what I'm about to say very clearly. Those that are visiting, and you don't know me. Uh, it's pretty common that when I'm preaching, I cry. So I'm just I'm just giving you a heads up. Now, often when I'm preparing during the week, I'll have an idea. But other days, I'm surprised. <laughs> And so singing that song in the context of today's text, uh, it was just emotional for me. So if you don't like crying, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, If you're good with it, good. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. Um, I'm going to kind of give you an overview of the chapter. Uh, but we're going to look specifically uh, at, at the, the last half, or maybe third, depending on how you want to break it down. Uh, beginning in verse 11. It's a familiar passage. Um, it's familiar whether you uh, were raised in church, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, whether you've never been in church. Uh, it seems to be a common story that, that people are familiar with. Uh, the prodigal son. Uh, there's a famous painting of that, uh, Rembrandt. Um, painted his kind of interpretation of that text. Uh, It's a story that, regardless of your background, regardless of where you're from, it seems to capture the human experience in some form or fashion or another. And so it's it's very familiar. It's very common. And and we're going to look at that today. Um, But as we do, I want to encourage you to do this as, as we begin... We're going to pray in just a moment. And to kind of, kind of set our hearts in the right place, I want you to consider this text um, somewhat as a mirror this morning. Uh, Hebrew says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing, uh, splitting even bone and marrow. And I think this text that we look at today, it's been read and preached and taught from different perspectives, and there's, there's conversations about uh, specifics. Every conceivable doctrine that could be argued for or against has been done from this passage. But, but the text that we're going to look at, it's a story that Jesus tells to a very specific group of people at a very specific moment in time. And while there are lots of truths that we can pull from it, there's certainly things that are clearly applicable across the board. Uh, we're going to focus in on kind of one idea. But as we do, I want you to, to consider this as you, as you open your copy of God's Word or you scroll on your copy of God's Word or you look on the screens. I want you to, to consider this story much like a mirror, uh, reflecting back to you who you are. Think of it like a microscope, uh, a microscope we use to... To, to view very small organisms or things, right? We can, we can see something that normally we wouldn't be able to see, a telescope that, that, that peers deep into outer space. I give you this imagery because I, I hope that as you sit with this text that, that it does that. I had all kinds of clever sayings for today, to be honest with you, you know? Preachers, they like to do that. And I had all kinds of crafty things. But we're really going to focus on the text. 
And I'm not going to introduce a whole lot else. Because I think it does that. It has the ability, if you'll sit with this text, that God's Word has the ability to, to allow you to peer deeply into your own heart. Penetrating into places that, that quite frankly, we don't want to go. Or admit to. It's easier just to pretend it doesn't exist. I can, I can kind of go through life and ignore some of these things that, that I think this passage reveals. I tried to come up with a scenario or a life circumstance where somebody just absolutely could not relate to this at all. And there may be some. Cameron and I were discussing it the other day, but it seems every... Every conceivable experience that we, that we raised or every circumstance that we considered, some way or another you could, you could see how this passage would speak into that. So the application is, is really absurd. But even in that, still, we've been in this series since January of last year, looking at the story of God, starting in Genesis 1 and, and working our way all the way through to here we're at Christ, we're at Jesus, and following this thread, this idea is what is the story of God? As we look through the text, as we turn from, from one story to next, what do we see God doing? What is God saying? What is God revealing to us about himself? And so as we, we dive into this text, we proposed in the same question. What's the story of God? What is Jesus communicating? So I want to take just one more moment and, and invite you to pray. And I'm going to pray for us. To just kind of center your mind, your heart, on what God is doing in your own life. Uh, to remove any distractions that you may have. And to Enter into this moment with a little bit of a sense of vulnerability. So as you sit there, as you, as you pray, it's going to be silent for just a moment. It's all right. Don't stress. And then I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll jump right into this. So go ahead and pray where you're at. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we turn to it now, we ask that you would use it to speak to us. That you would use it to reflect to us who we really are. Father, that it would penetrate our hearts. And Lord, not for the sake of judgment or condemnation, but because of what we see in this text, because of what you offer, because of the joy and the hope that comes through your salvation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
if I were to give you a map, uh, a topographical map, not one that tells you what city you're in and road names, but just a map. We've got hot shots in the wilderness fighting wildfires. There's no roads out there for the most part when they get out in the wilderness. They have a map. And they've got some landmarks, some mountains. They see smoke or different things. But ultimately, their, their direction is based off this map that they have. Now, some of you, if you were to be given a map, you would just check out. You'd be like, that doesn't do me any good. Deidre has had to work real hard since we moved to the city to understand a map. Just a regular map. North, south, east, west, that kind of thing. But if you've got nothing, it's just a topographical map. There's lines on it. I hand you that, and I point, and I say, I need you to get to this location right here. Got it? You're like, yeah, okay, all right, I got it, right here. And then I leave. You're by yourself with this map. You know where you're supposed to go. And I'm out of sight. I've gotten a vehicle. I've drove off, and it dawns on you that you have no idea where you're at. You don't know. You don't even know if you're located on the map. You could be in the bottom left. You could be in the top right. Anywhere in between. But you have no idea. You just know that you're supposed to get to this spot. The chances of you getting there are slim to none. Like you have no idea. And so as we look at this text today, I, I, I think in some ways Jesus is kind of giving a set of coordinates to those who are listening to help them understand where they're at and where they're going. The context is set in uh, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is speaking to uh, tax collectors and sinners. They've drawn near to him, it says. And then there's Pharisees there as well. And the Pharisees are grumbling, you know, like they typically do. And... Uh, the tax collectors and sinners are, are close. I, I picture them kind of, kind of leaned in, gathered in. They're around him. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. And, and the Pharisees are, like, they're close enough that they're, they're in earshot, but they're not in the conversation, right? They're kind of back, maybe by the doorway. Be careful so I don't fall off here. Like, they can hear what's going on. They see what Jesus is doing, who he's hanging out with. But they're not really experiencing anything about Jesus. They're, they're observing Jesus. They're criticizing Jesus. They're critiquing Jesus. But they're not really experiencing Jesus. And so that's kind of the setting. And so as they're criticizing, why is Jesus with these guys? Jesus begins to tell three stories. There's three parables here in this chapter. Kind of a trilogy. And he begins um, with the story of lost sheep. And I'm going to paraphrase these first two for you, so hang with me. you got your Bibles, you can look. He says the shepherd has a hundred sheep, and he's accounted for 99 of them. He's got 99 out of the hundred, but he realizes one is lost. So what's he do? I don't suppose any of us in here are shepherds, but the shepherd goes to find the other sheep, right? He goes and he looks for it. He leaves the 99 and he goes and looks for the one. And when he finds it, what's he do? He throws a party, celebrates. It's a big deal. We're not shepherds. That one maybe doesn't relate as well. The next one, these people were. The next one is about a woman who's lost a coin. She has ten silver coins. But she loses one. She's only got nine of those coins. So she begins to, to search the house, tearing the house apart. And she finds it. And when she finds it, she's excited. 
she celebrates. Verse 10 says, Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Hopping back up to the lost sheep, it says in verse 7, Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is trying to tell them something here. I don't know what it's like in your homes. In my house, somebody is always losing something. If it's not the kids, it's me. If it's not me, it's my mom. Usually it's not Deidre. She generally helps us find those things. But we'll scour the house for shoes or toys or devices or keys or the remote control. Like if I've lost the remote control to the TV, like I'm ripping the house apart. Like ripping it apart. Couch cushions are gone. The couch may be upside down. I'm yelling. I'm upset. I'm, it's a remote control. It's ridiculous. But it's, that's reality. And then what I do when I find it? What do you do when you find something in your house? I know some of you lose things in your house. When we lose something in our house, it's common. If you were just hanging out at our house, had no real reason to be there, you're just hanging out enjoying life. It's common to hear at any given time of the day or night from any corner of the home to hear somebody yell, I found it! Hey, I found it! All the time. And we do that because we want everybody else to know, at one, you don't have to look no more. We're calling it off. The search is over with. But we're excited over silly things. Now, Jesus is making a very clear point here. Again, he's speaking to very specific people, a crowd around him, some kind of in the distance. But he's telling them about the joy that takes place in heaven over a sinner who repents, much less a remote. And then we get to the third parable. And it begins like this in verse 11. It begins with the word, and. So he tells the first parable, and then he says, or what about this one? And then in verse 11 he says, and this one. It's a conjunction. Conjunction connects words or sentences together. It conjoins them. It it coordinates a sentence or concepts. So Jesus is, he's coordinating for them. He's locating for them where they're at in this story or in these stories, in this conversation. He's giving them coordinates to say, here's where you're at, and here's where you need to be. Like, here's what it's going to be like in heaven as a result of this. But here's where you're at now. There's different people in the story, and so depending on which one they are, they're located in different spots. But, but he's very clearly telling them, hey, here's your reality. Here's your current location, and here's where you need to be. I messed with uh, uh, David and Rick this morning on the slides. I gave them different verses and I changed it. And I'm about to change it again. So your slides might not always match on the screen. Let me just give you a forewarning. Verse 24 says this. For this my son was dead. The father is speaking here. I'll explain this in just a second. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. On either side of this verse, 
you have a story of two sons. Preceding it is the story of a younger son. And then after it's the story of an older son. In this moment, the father of those sons is explaining that my son was dead, but he's alive. There's a celebration that's taking place. Now, we could probably put this story together if I were to just ask you to somebody to begin tell me the first part of the story and then somebody else pick up we could probably piece it together without even having to read it it's it's that familiar but I'm going to read it there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father father give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them not many days later the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. All right, so here's the scene. You have two sons, an older son and a younger son, the father. The younger son comes to his father and says, Dad, give me my inheritance. Now, when do you normally get an inheritance? Death, right? So what's the younger son saying to the dad? Is it just about the property, the money, the wealth? He's essentially saying, I wish you were dead. I can't wait for you to die. Literally. And so now I want my money instead. Kenneth Bailey... uh, said this. He says, for over 15 years, I have been asking people of all walks of life from Morocco to India and from Turkey to Sudan about the implication of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. The answer has always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? He would ask. Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Well, the request means he wants his father to die. Like, the offensiveness of this son's question, the audacity of this request is, is almost more than we can really fathom, I think, in our current context in society. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what belongs to me. So I can go live my life the way I want it. That's what he's saying. Now, these other uh, outside sources say that the father would probably beat the son. And maybe that's what would happen. But here we see the father simply takes his property, his wealth, likely uh, maybe some herds or livestock, different things like that. And he divides it among his sons. Uh, According to the Old Testament, uh, the father would divide his inheritance. If he had two sons, he would divide his inheritance or his wealth into three portions and the older son would get two a double portion and then the younger son would get one if you had four children he would divide it into five portions the older son would get two the other children would get one and so this is what the son's asking for this is what the younger son's asking for divide it give me my my portion of it and i'm out and so that's what he does he leaves now the father gives it to him Jesus, again, this is a story that Jesus is telling. He doesn't, there's so many questions that I have for this. But he gives us what we need, what we need to recognize and understand. And the Father just 
divvies it up, hands it out, the son leaves. I, I imagine the older son is furious as well. I imagine the father's just heartbroken. Like, I've done everything that I can for this child. And he wants nothing. But to take some goods, some money, some property, and leave. The son, we know the story of the prodigal son. The son goes to a distant country almost immediately. And it says he squanders his, his wealth, he squanders his inheritance on reckless living. It doesn't tell us what the reckless living is uh, in the first part. The, the older son seems to have the assumption that he's spending on prostitutes, or at least some of it on prostitutes. But really, it, really it doesn't matter. It's that the idea that the younger son is spending it on um, probably debauchery of any kind or indulgences overspending or maybe he's gambling it or or the prostitutes or or whatever it may be but it's not a wholesome life he didn't say give me my money so i can go and and build myself a property and live a quiet secure life over here by myself no he went far away as far away as he could get to where he could have as much fun as possible and it's gone he blows it just being here this close to Vegas, that's what my mind thinks of. I think about the people that run to Vegas and just the money's gone. Everything that they have, gone. Moments, days. Threw it all away. Reckless living. And with all of that money gone, a famine comes. There's no food. He has no money. And so he hires himself out to a local who puts him to work in the fields feeding pigs. Not glamorous. Just, yeah, I need... Somebody to feed my pigs. And he's starving. There's very little food. They're, they're using what they have still to feed the livestock. And he looks at the pigs. He sees the pigs. And, and he, he thinks, man, if I could just have that. To eat that would be better. Because I'm, I'm so hungry. And they won't give him any of that. Verse 17. This is speaking of the younger son. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father thinks the son is gone. It wasn't like he was, he was catching a plane. He was uh, sending email updates to let his dad know where he was at or text messages or whatever it was. There was no communication. The younger son left and he left. And the implications of that was that he was not coming back. Imagine really even the thought of that. To ask your father for, for the inheritance Knowing that the, the request is saying, I wish you were dead. There's, there's no implications that the younger son is going to return. And now he has. 
you can only imagine. We, we don't know what he looks like at this point. I, I imagine a young man that looks just battered, living life on the ragged edge. And he comes back, and he's, he's returning home probably by foot. He couldn't afford anything else would be my assumption. And he's been in a distant country. This trip takes time. And so I have questions about the conversation that's playing in his head. You know, what if, what if he won't have me back? Am I really going to do this? What's my brother going to think? Will they accept me? You know what? This is ridiculous. I, I'm not doing this. I can just stay in the next town. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But, but that conversation had to just linger. He wasn't hopping in an Uber and going two blocks over. This was a long walk. And I only imagine he's reflecting on the, the ridiculousness of the life that he's lived to this point. And the humility that it's going to take to come back and say, Dad, I'm, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Can I please just work in the fields? Can I just please be here? Treat me as one of your servants. That's all. That would be better than what I have anywhere else. The father sees him and he runs to him and he embraces him and begins to kiss his son and throw a party. He's going to celebrate. My son is alive. Now, my guess is that's not what the younger son anticipated was going to happen. My guess is he thought, man, that is going to kill me. Even if he lets me come back, there's going to be stipulations. There's going to be conditions. Uh, It's not going to be pleasant. But the father is overjoyed with what he has. And the father's embrace lets the son know immediately that he's restored to his place as his son. The party kicks off. And then in verse 25, we shift to the older son. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, hearing music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. And he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father. Look these many years I've served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came. Who's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him. Son. You're always with me. And all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I find it most common on sermons or teaching that I've heard on this text. The question usually or people's response to it as they read it or study it is, is you generally identify with one character or the other. Uh, and, and often it's 
considered uh, around a, maybe a conversion experience. That's common as well. And as I've, as I've thought about this passage, as I've, I've reflected on it, as I've looked at my own life with this, I can point out certain times in my life where I would say, oh, that, I'm definitely right there, that I'm definitely the younger brother. Or I'm, I'm without a doubt the older brother right here. Like This is exactly how I'm living. But as I've considered it, it's not, it's not a, a linear thing. We, we often think about uh, or conceptualize our life as A to B to C to D. And if once I've got here and I've moved beyond that, then I'm, I'm good to go. And I think what makes this, this story so powerful is that it, it does speak to that moment of, of, of conversion. It speaks to the one who is lost and is found, but it speaks... So much deeper than even that. That the, the heart of a person, whether they've run off to a distant land or they've stayed at home exactly where they're at, so quickly becomes rebellious. That wants what it wants right now. That it doesn't concern itself with anybody else or anything else. The, the younger son runs away and lives life exactly how he wants to and 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 we see that less as you as maybe we're in this type of setting a sunday morning within a church maybe maybe we see that i there was a time in my life where i lived that where i i could be present on sunday morning but the rest of my life i was i was in a distant country living and doing whatever i wanted there was a time in my life to where I was the, the older son, to where I had stayed and I had obligations and I had duties and responsibilities. And I did those. And I thought, what about me? Don't you see what I'm doing? Where's my inheritance? Just... How about, how about I don't get the inheritance? Let's just give me a goat. Just, just something, one thing, a little thing. See, here's how you can kind of figure out where you're at. Whether it's, whether it's living in, in, in complete selfishness and rebellion, doing what you want, when you want, or whether you're, you're the older brother who's, who's living in envy, always looking around. As you, can, you can begin to ask yourself some questions because it comes out in your life, whether you realize it or not. It's expressed in your emotions. It's expressed in your relationships. Do you get angry easily at the thought of what other people are doing or at at the thought of somebody else's success? Does it bother you when people don't recognize all that you've done? Is your life more consumed just, just with yourself and the things that you want and Kind of living your best life now, or, or is there a concern for others? Is there a concern for those that are lost? Pretty quickly, you can begin to identify from the simplicity of Jesus' story where you're located. And Jesus very easily identifies for us where we need to be. The older son didn't travel far away, yet he 
was in a distant land as well. He was a, he was a foreigner in his own home. The story of God, I think, in this text is that God the Father longs to give a loving embrace to all of his lost children. To those children that repent, who turn around and return home, return into the the only one that can give life. Father extends his arms wide to receive and to restore his children to their rightful place as sons and daughters of the Most High King. So my question is this, are are you living in the, the loving embrace of the Father? Or do you find yourself in a distant land? Father is is entreating you to to come home, to experience his love, to experience his embrace. I imagine Jesus telling the story with, with the group off to the back, the Pharisees off to the back, and he's sitting with the tax collectors and sinners thinking, you know, guys, just come on over here. Come into the room and sit with us. Like I'm extending this to you. I want to love you. And I think we we see that regardless of which character we most identify with in this story. That the Father is extending that love to us. But the choice He leaves it to us. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on this text one time, said, Slow are the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. We're often slow to turn from our sin, whatever it is that characterizes our life. We're slow to turn. But God is swift to forgive us. So where are you at? Henry Nguyen, in a book he wrote about this text, says this. He says, To to whom do I belong? To God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits and a little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or to thrust me down. When we're living outside of the embrace of the Father, then I think that's characteristic of most of our lives but when we're when our nearness to the father is such that he can reach his arms around us that we're living out of that experience on a daily basis then our ability to 
to not only know where we're at, we're located at the feet of the Father, but our ability to hear from Him and to know where He, he would have us to go increases. So we're going to sing one last song today. And I'm going to ask you to stand. going to pray. And as we pray, the application of this text is as varied as the people in this room or the, the hearers that hear it in any given place. Because each of our lives are unique in so many ways. But there's such a similarity about our hearts regardless of where we're at. It's expressed maybe in different ways. But, but the, the center of our heart often is where we're most alike. And so as we pray, I want to ask you to identify where you're at. Do you understand who you, who you really belong to? Does your life express that? Do people look at that and see it? Do they know it? And allow God to make the application in your life. Allow God's Spirit to to prompt you as to, to what needs to change. Do you need to come home or have you been living exactly where you should be living? Are you concerned about getting the most out of life? Or envious of what others have. Let me pray for us. And then we'll sing. And close for the day. Father that you have. Chosen to reveal yourself to us in this way is is remarkable. And Lord so much of, of this parable, this story that you told resonates so deeply in my own heart. Lord, I pray that it wouldn't merely be a, a time to, to stand in front of your people and to, to share about it, to teach about it, but Lord, that it would continue to penetrate deeply into my own soul. shaping me into the image of your son and father I pray the same for each one here today Lord that your words would shape us that it would soften our hearts Lord that we would experience your embrace father that we would recognize the joy that comes from your salvation Lord, that our lives would be poured out to see that come to so many more. God, we love you. We know that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.